Hello and welcome to We've Got History. In this episode, you'll be hearing from current interns at the CRC. What have the projects involved? How did they get on with them? And how did they adapt to COVID-19 restrictions? This episode is coming out just as the CRC has taken on a record number of summer interns. Congratulations to all these new starts who just enjoyed their first week. We hope that we see you for a few of the future intern showcases. On the day, each intern spoke for around 10 minutes about what they've been up to. Most were coming to the end of their internship, but a few are only halfway through. It is a real snapshot in time about what is going on here and now at the Centre for Research Collections. Some of you may remember that when we, back in the kind of pre-COVID days, we used to do these, these internship presentations fairly often, but this is going to be our first virtual showcase, which is, is very exciting. And of course, a lot of the, the interns have been working with us have also been doing their internships remotely. So I think we'll hear a little bit as well about maybe some of the, the challenges, also the, the benefits of doing this this work remotely and you know I think as we can see just from the the topics of the presentation titles doing these internships remotely is, is no barrier to wonderful work being done so that's been really fantastic one of the reasons that we do these um, kind of showcase presentations for our interns is because it's a great professional development opportunity for our interns to get the chance to do this so I think I'll pass over to our first speaker And Mary also a volunteer with the Centre for Research Collections, if I remember rightly, kind of a couple of years ago. Is that right? Yeah, well, that was at the start of 2019. Um, okay. Yeah, because I lived in Australia for about five years, but I decided when I came back to visit family to try and squeeze some kind of work placement in as well. <laughs> so it was a busy trip, but it was good. <laughs> yeah, and, and now um, Mary rejoined us as an intern working with Emily Hick, our Special Collections Conservator in at the start of April and she's she's been working on what I think is a very interesting project but which also shows a lot of ingenuity on both Mary's part and Emily's part in getting this project to kind of work remotely so I'll, I'll hand over to you Mary if that's okay. Great so my name is Mary and for the last six weeks I've been a virtual research intern at the Centre for Research Collections. So my internship has been focused on water quality when people think of water, a lot of things come to mind. You might think of how rainy Scotland is or how everyone seems to have taken up wild swimming over the lockdown. Definitely not me though. <laughs> you might think about the water filter jug that's in your fridge at home. But in paper conservation, water is used almost daily. It's used to make different adhesives, it's used to flatten objects, and it's used to give dirty objects a really good bath. As conservation has developed from its roots in craftsmanship to a more scientific profession, more attention has been paid to water quality. So now there are so many different types of water and purification systems available to conservators. So my internship has been focused on investigating tap water quality in Edinburgh to determine if it's good enough for using conservation treatments at the CRC. The outcome of my research has been a set of recommendations for the CRC and my proposal of an official water testing programme. 
So to have a really good investigation, I first conducted a literature review to get some background knowledge on my research topic. I want you to find out how tap water is purified, what's in tap water, and how this relates to different water purification systems used in conservation. I also want you to assess what other research has been done in this area and look for any gaps where my research could fit in. So my first port of call was the Scottish Water website and I got some really good information on the quality standards set by Scottish Water. I also looked into different water types. So in conservation, it's quite common to use distilled or deionized water as well as tap water. And there are all sorts of complex purification systems, which can include anything from activated charcoal filters like the one in your jug at home, uh, to using UV light to kill off any pesky bacteria. So I also looked into how water is used in conservation, and this is where I found my gap in the literature and research. It seems that apart from an optimum pH level that's recommended, there aren't really any other parameters set for water quality in paper conservation. So we know it's really bad for objects, but there aren't really any maximum values set. And this was an area that I wanted to investigate more thoroughly. So when doing this kind of research, it's important to have real life evidence to support your work. So to start off with, I created my own at-home experiments, and this was my supervisor, Emily Hicks, really good idea. So to give you a bit of background on the experiments, the chlorine content of tap water is something that concerns conservators. So chlorine is used to disinfect tap water, but it also has the potential to bleach paper. Now, funnily enough, um, until about the 1970s or 80s, Chlorine and chloramine compounds were applied to paper-based objects to make them appear brighter. But this came to a halt when conservators realized that it can really damage paper, much like when you bleach your hair too much and it all begins to snap off. Now, this has definitely been me in the past. So I want you to find out if the chlorine content of my tap water changed drastically over the period of a month. I also want you to compare the content to that of spring water, charcoal filtered water, and distilled water. So I use these little test strips, which you dip into the water. The strip changes color dependent on how much chlorine is in the water. So if there's no chlorine or very little, it remains quite light. And if there's a lot of chlorine, it turns quite dark. So the results were pretty positive. Chlorine level in the tap water and filtered water were very low and didn't vary a lot. So the maximum level recommended was five and it was below one the whole time. And the distilled in spring water had no chlorine, which made a lot of sense because they'd both been purified. So I also did analysis of some on-site water samples. With the help of the CRC and St. Cecilia's Hall staff, some tap water samples were taken and sent off for content analysis by an external company. So we selected a standard test, which tests for almost everything that concerns paper conservators. So that would be metals, pH, conductivity, and water hardness. So metals can attach to paper and weaken and discolor it. Acidic water can also weaken paper. And as everyone knows, Scottish tap water tends to be really, really good. So it's unsurprising that the results were really positive. All of the metals were under the maximum value recommended by Scottish water. The pH was very close to neutral and the water was quite soft. There were slight variations with the CRC and SCH samples differing slightly from the university collections facility samples. So this could be because the UCF falls under a different water supply area, but overall at all sites, the water seems to be safe to use for conservation treatments 
subject to regular testing and monitoring. So after I gathered all these facts and figures, I decided to conduct an online survey. I thought it would be quite interesting to compare my literature review and the experiment outcomes with the opinions of practicing conservators, because quite often what you learn in uni differs a bit from how things happen in the workplace. So I made a 10 question survey which asked conservators all about which waters they used and why, which purification systems they used, their opinions on tap water and if they had an official water testing program. So I got 50 respondents, which was a really good outcome. 52% were from North America, 18% were from the UK and 16% were from mainland Europe. Um, the rest of the respondents came from all other areas um, as far away as Australia and New Zealand. So there were some general trends. The respondents from North America used far more complex filtration systems, sometimes due to the poor quality of their tap water over there, but sometimes just because they preferred it. And respondents from the UK used more tap water. So interestingly, a lot of the respondents said that the use of tap water is okay, so long as it's consistently tested and analyzed. But in contrast to this, some conservators said they choose not to use tap water, even though it's safe to use in their area. So it showed me a lot about the risk tolerance of conservators. Of course, their greatest concern is the safety of the objects they're working on. They don't want to damage anything. And this is why so many use purified, tap, purified water, because it gives them a greater sense of comfort and control in their work. However, tap water does remain the most cost-effective and sustainable choice. So all in all, the survey gave me a really good idea of content and procedures to include in my water testing program. So I was able to come to the conclusion that tap water is safe for use in paper conservation treatments at the CRC. So using the data that I got from the experiments and the survey, I was able to form the testing program, which makes sure that the water is closely monitored and continues to be safe to use. So weekly on-site testing of pH levels before making solutions and adhesives can ensure that the tap water is not too acidic. I've also recommended monthly chlorine monitoring. So the tests that I did at home are only really applicable to my water supply area, which is different. And so I've recommended that the experiment I did is replicated on site as well. And the strips that I used weren't very sensitive. They gave quite a basic reading. So I've recommended a more exact digital chlorine meter and monthly testing will account for any fluctuations. On top of this, a biannual water analysis will, now, will allow the CRC to keep an eye on the metal contents of the water. And these results can be compared like I did with the Scottish Water Quality Reports to, to assess any discrepancies that should be flagged up. The survey also gave me some ideas for contingency plans. So if the water has too high a chlorine or metal content, I've recommended that jugs of distilled water can be used in the interim while follow-up testing is done. Um, this is a practice that quite a lot of conservators did already in the survey. And as a last resort, um, an under-sink activated charcoal filter has been recommended as it is one of the simplest, most cost-effective and sustainable purification systems. So it was interesting for me because usually when people think of conservation work, they think of purely practical work. So you're working with the physical objects. So it's been really good for me to see what can actually be achieved at home. And I think, yeah, it's been a really good idea to have on-site experiments that I can also analyze from home as well yeah so it's given me a really good insight into 
the research aspect of conservation rather than just the physical aspect. So I'd just like to thank everyone at the Centre for Research Collections and special thank you to Emily for organising the internship. Thank you to Anna for encouraging me to apply and being a good coffee buddy during the lockdowns. Thank you to Jonathan for taking the time to talk to me about water and musical instrument conservation. Thank you to Laura for organising this event and Ruth for reading my very long reports and the rest of the CRC and library staff for including me in all of your meetings and events. Thanks. Really excellent. And I think what what was really, I really enjoyed about that was how you made the topic of water in conservation so accessible to people who might not otherwise have, you know, I had never heard of this as being an important topic in, in conservation before. And it's such a fascinating topic. You know, I just didn't realize there were so many things to think about. Yeah, there are so many things. And I, I think that's why there is a bit of a gap in the research, because there are so many different things you can test. And there's a lot of different variables, like there's so many different types of paper, different types of media. So really, yeah, you could test everything. It would take a very long time. But I think I said to Jonathan, it could be like several PhD topics for someone. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're your next step. Um... <laughs> Fantastic. So Rowan is um, a current PhD candidate. She volunteered with us, I think, was it October you started volunteering? Yeah, um, yeah, it was. Yeah, back in, back in October. But since April, she's been working with our musical instrument curator, uh, Jenny Nex, and Sarah Dieters on the, the Can't Stop the Music project. And that's what we're going to hear about. So what I've been doing at St. Cecilia's Hall has been, yeah, it's been great. So yeah, I'll kind of take you through what I've been up to the past, past two months or so. And this kind of goes into July, this internship. So we still got lots to go. St. Cecilia's itself houses the university's enormous musical instrument collection. And it's also home to St. Cecilia's Hall. So that's the first purpose-built concert hall in Scotland and the second in the UK, I believe, and um, is built in 1763. And with the combination of the instruments in the collection and the hall, it's a great place to actually hear and record historic instruments. And that's exactly what this internship has been all about. So St Cecilia's was recently awarded funding from Museums and Galleries Scotland as part of their COVID recovery package. Um, and that's to carry out a project called Can't Stop the Music. And the project is, in, is designed to increase access to the museum's collections by creating short films about various instruments and making these available both in the museum and online. And this means that even people who can't get to the museum in person will be able to engage with these instruments and importantly hear what they sound like. It's been quite local, which is nice. So to source these musicians to come in and record certain instruments. And that's involved researching local musicians, uh, making contact with community groups, as well as scheduling the filming and kind of just doing the admin that comes along with that. And when filming takes place in July, We'll have about 30 musicians come into the museum to either demonstrate an instrument on film or give a concert performance, obviously without an audience, um, of about 30 minutes. So I'll just take you quickly through some of the instruments that we're going to film. 
Uh, we're actually recording five um, of the keyboard instruments, which will involve carrying each of them into the concert hall from the gallery they're currently displayed in. So I think a certain amount of, of muscle is going to be needed for that. And two of the more unusual wind instruments that we're going to be recording. So the basset horn, which I think looks a bit more like a kind of steampunk accessory than a musical instrument. It's, it's related to the clarinet, but it sounds lower. And Mozart loved the basset horn, wrote lots of pieces for it, or they included it. And the glass flute is also quite unusual in that you'd normally expect a flute to be made of metal or wood. Next up is the decachord. And unlike most guitars, which have six strings, the decachord, as its name suggests, has ten. And I think this was meant to make the instrument easier to play, but apparently had the opposite effect. And now I know it looks like I've badly stretched the image on the right, um, but it is actually that shape, this instrument. So this is a pochette, French for pocket, and it's a very slender violin, which was used by a dancing master to play tunes to help teach the steps to dancers. So it's very portable and small. From one strange instrument to another, the serpent, which is a brass instrument that was used quite extensively in sacred music, especially in the UK, I believe. It is enormous. I think this is actually the only contrabass serpent known to exist apart from modern um, reconstructions. So it's quite special and has been given the name the anaconda because of its size. Unlike the serpent, the hunting horn was designed to be carried while on horseback. But as far as I'm aware, we're not bringing horses into the museum this time. Um, so just people playing it. This hard anger fiddle, um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, so sorry if anyone speaks Norwegian, is a traditional Norwegian instrument. And it has a really beautiful and unusual sound, thanks to an extra set of strings, which resonate sympathetically when the violin is played. And finally, we've got this mashup of an instrument, the straw violin. Back in the early days of sound recording, the relatively quiet sound of the violin wasn't picked up so well by the kind of early equipment. So electrical engineer Augustus Stroh made some adaptations, including the, the horn you can see there, and it has a resonator. So this is to better project the sound and allow it to be recorded. So that's just a selection of some of the instruments that we'll be filming. And each of those will be recorded solo and in a short extract of maybe 30 seconds to a minute to allow visitors and people online to hear the instrument while learning about its history and uses. And I mentioned the longer concerts we'll be filming. And these are more to showcase an instrument or a style of playing. So some will be more familiar. We've got a jazz ensemble playing some kind of um, New Orleans style jazz. There's a brass ensemble um, and a, a Georgian trio, which is which will consist of a recorder and a harpsichord player and a viol player, uh, which is kind of earlier string instrument. And we're also highlighting instruments that are maybe less well known in the UK. So there'll be an Indian classical music concert, which involves a tabla, which is a type of drum, and a sarangi, which is a, a sort of fiddle that, like the hardanger fiddle, has sympathetic strings. The shakuhachi is a Japanese bamboo flute, and that has a whole concert dedicated to it, um, as well the kora, uh, which is a plucked string instrument widely used in West Africa, uh, which I think often has an impressive 21 strings, even more than the decachord. And yeah, the, this is, as I say, just a kind of selection of some of the instruments, but it's been such a treat to get to know them um, and kind of learn about their histories, uh, how they were made, how they were used, 
and it's been really fun finding musicians who can play them. Unsurprisingly, there are not many people in the Edinburgh area who are professional shakuhachi players or decacord players. So I've had the privilege of making good connections with community groups and charities who involve these musicians. So I want to say thank you to Jenny, uh, Sarah and Jonathan at St Cecilia's and also to Laura and the rest of the team uh, for hosting this event today. And I can't wait to hear all these instruments being played during filming in July and to see the finished products on the website and host also hopefully in the museum. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rowan. That was that was excellent. Really, a really very well thought out presentation, I thought, you know, giving us uh, <laughs> lots of information about the instruments and also telling us about your role in the internship. And I, I'm absolutely the same as you now, Rowan. I can't I can't wait to hear how these instruments are going to sound. And I think that's such a fantastic resource that we're going to have, you know, going forward. So thank you so much um, for all that you've you've done that and thank you. speaker is, is Daisy Chamberlain who has been the summer scholar I believe that's your official title Daisy at the Anatomical Museum um, working of course with our anatomical curator Malcolm McCallum really looking forward to hearing from you a bit more about your research and I know everyone else is as well so I'll pass over to you Daisy if that's all right. Yeah thank you so um, yeah I'm Daisy I did my undergraduate degree in history at Edinburgh. I'm now studying for my master's but um, yeah I'm the current summer scholar with the Anatomical Museum looking at their collection of African skulls and so my job is kind of to look into the individuals that, that the skulls belong to but also the backgrounds and motivations of the people who looted them and donated them to the museum. So my remit is to look into the collection in its entirety, but part of this includes making a contribution to an online exhibition about phrenology, which was in um, pseudoscience, and that's um, gonna launch in August. Main source of information about the collection been this Excel database, which Ruth at the museum put together. And so depending on the completeness of the record, I might get names of the collectors or the donors, the specific um, African country that the skull was um, stolen from. I might get donation dates or like short acquisition notes that give me a bit of context, but it just really depends on the individual case. And so I started by mapping the skulls on a map of Africa just to get an idea of the geographical spread. And then after that, like looking into the donors and the collectors whose names came up most often. In the database there are multiple references to like specific battlefields or historical events that link the acquisition of these skulls by the university to like the colonization of numerous African countries. So for just what like one example is there's a West African skull that was donated in 1900 which was described as being found during the Ashanti expedition of, of 1900 and these expeditions were fueled by British concern over increasing annexation of West African territories by French, by the French and the Germans. 
and fighting broke out in 1900 because the governor of the Gold Coast tried to steal the sacred throne of the Ashanti people to give it to Queen Victoria. And the wars resulted in the British eventually occupying the whole of the Ashanti Empire. So it kind of shows how, for the collection as a whole, colonialism and skull collection were like mutually supportive projects. So phrenology and different pseudosciences that analysed the skull generated these racist attitudes that justified colonialism, but then colonialism generated the raw materials goals that were like used to make those theories. One of the most significant developments and quite an exciting one has been the discovery of an entry for the skull of Chief Masiri, who dominated a large portion of Central Africa. And he was killed by Belgian forces who had been sent by King Leopold to capture the region of Katanga during the scramble for Africa. And the reason this is such a significant discovery is because there's been a great deal of mystery surrounding the whereabouts of his head, um, both in like historical literature, but also like public history in um, like popular history in the DRC. So yeah, in the 70s, there's a painter and historian who made a series of paintings telling the colonial history of his country. And a big theme in the series is the killing and decapitation of this chief. So you can see that in, in this painting. Um, and his head is like taken as like a big symbol of, of Belgian colonialism, but no one's been able to say where it ended up. And there are lots of conflicting theories about it. So if we manage to authenticate this skull, we'll be able to answer a really big historical question. Yeah, it's definitely been strange because I think because a lot of the stories I've been uncovering sounds obvious but been violent and often unsettling it's quite strange having the detachment from the collection like I haven't actually seen any of the skulls in person so it's kind of really hard to not hard to but um I guess just different connecting the the kind of stories with the the remains that you have in front of you constant reminders of those stories which you don't really get so I think yeah, having that detachment's been quite strange. But then also, and, and usually I probably would have gone into archives and stuff because trying to find out the like motivations of the collectors. Mm. I, I know there's loads of like letters and stuff about them that I haven't been able to look at, but I know that they're there. But then it's just kind of meant kind of digging up other resources that like I can see online. And I think if I hadn't been doing it remotely, I might not have found that painter, for example as an alternative way of finding out about that story. So it's been cha challenging in a lot of ways, but then also I think I've, I've had to go down different avenues, found things I wouldn't have found otherwise. So it's been interesting. Yeah, so the last point I was gonna make is just kind of what it's like working with the database and working with the collection. I kind of have to be constantly aware that the documentation I'm using kind of function to uphold white supremacy during the colonial period, because the notes I have are literally transcribed from the people who are like collecting these skulls in the 19th century. So for example, there's a skull that, a South African skull that was donated by Thomas Pringle. And 
the only description that's given is that you can see in the entry that it's just labeled as like a robber. So in the absence of any kind of name or life history, this person's been defined just by their criminality. But what's not included is that in the early 19th century, as the Dutch and the British were like settling in South Africa and displacing loads of indigenous people, they became dependent raiding settlements for like food and water and just to survive. But that kind of context completely taken out of the database. So part of my role has been kind of inserting that context back in. So yeah, it's a two month placement and I'm just over halfway through it. And yeah, I'll hopefully be compiling everything I've found in a report of future research, but I think I'm definitely only gonna be able to scratch the surface in the time that I have today. Thank you for listening. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Daisy. That was really interesting to hear. Obviously, the, the results themselves of the research are so fascinating. And, and as Jackie said in, in the chat, that's going to feed into you know, a lot of the work that's going on at the moment. As you, as you said, Daisy, to kind of set the context for the university history and our collections. But also really fascinating as well, just to hear about your research tackling a topic like that. And I'm so impressed both with you and, and Rowan, who you're only kind of halfway through your internships and you've already um, achieved so much. So we, we really look forward to, to hearing, you know, what you've achieved by the end. You're listening to We've Got History Between Us. This podcast is brought to you by Voice, volunteers and collections engagement. VOICE is a volunteer-led initiative from a team of seven volunteers at the Centre for Research Collections at the University of Edinburgh, and the CRC has got history. Over the coming months, we've got history by exploring the different aspects of the collections, archives and beyond to the wider museum circuit and heritage sector. We're hoping to bring you interviews, discussion panels, we'll be delving into exhibitions, artefacts and new acquisitions. We'll also shine a light on the different types of volunteering going on at the CRC, so soon we hope you get to meet the team and the wider group. Okay, now we are going to move from African skills to the art collection. So our next speaker is going to be Jesslyn, Jesslyn Lowe. So Jesslyn started her student placement with the art, art collection team. So Julianne, Liv and Anna back in October. Is that right, Jesslyn? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and she's going, her presentation today is entitled 15 Artists, 200 Years. And she's going to be telling us about women artists in the collection. Uh, my name is Jessel Lowe, and for my internship, I was putting together the School of Arts and Culture story um, that was highlighting some of the amazing female artists that are part of the University of Edinburgh's art collection. Um, so this is still a draft. Uh, it's not quite in its final form yet. There's still a few little edits that need to be made. So all of you are getting a little bit of a sneak peek before this actually gets released. Just thought that I would share a little bit of some things that I've learned, maybe some things that were difficult for me um, throughout this process. So for me, I think the most difficult part of all this was just trying to decide which artists to include and which artists to leave out. Um, I spent a lot of time contemplating that during this whole process. Um, and this painting is actually a perfect example of that. Um, this artist, her name is Anna Miller. And I really loved 
her work and wanted to include her as one of the artists to highlight in this story. But in my initial list of artists, which was like 25 to 30 artists, I was able to find information about basically all of them, except for Anna Miller. I couldn't find anything online about her at all. Thankfully though, she actually worked at the university for a short time and uh, Julianne knew a colleague of hers and was able to reach out to him and get some more information about Anna Miller's life. But at the end of the day, her story and her art just didn't quite fit into the narrative how we wanted it to. It didn't quite flow how we wanted it to. And so we had to uh, remove her from the list of artists that we were going to include in this. Thankfully though, I was still able to include her art that I really liked in some of these introductory slides just in the background. And I think that that was what was kind of the biggest thing for me was just making sure that I was always focusing on the narrative when I was looking at these artists because I would get so caught up in how much I enjoyed their art that I wouldn't think about how well it was actually fitting into the narrative with the rest of the arts and how that was, um, how that was flowing. So that was something that was, we were kind of constantly revising our, our list of artists that were going to be included. There were artists that a few weeks in, we were like, oh, we really need to add this artist into this series. Like they play an important role in the collection. They played an important role um, as an artist in general, as an artist in Scotland. One of those artists was this next one, Emma Gillis who has about 150 some odd ceramic pieces that are part of the collection. So she plays an important role there and she's a very prolific artist of her time and felt like we needed to include her here. And so we were able to um, add her in. Um, Red Path was another one that we initially had kind of left off the list and then we remembered her and we were like, oh, she really needs to be in here too and had to add her in. So I think, for me, learning to be flexible and learning how to kind of go with the flow, adding people was something that was really helpful for me. And some of them really fell into place quite naturally. This one, uh, Joan Yardley, was one that we added later. Initially, we had an artist named Hope Scott, who was also a patron of the arts, and at her death, bequeathed her collection to the university. And the Hope Scott collection plays a really important role in the university's holdings. It has a lot of work from very prominent Scottish artists of the 20th century. And Yardley is one of those artists um, that was very active during the 20th century. We felt like we needed to have her in here. And it just so happened that this piece is part of the Hope Scott collection. And so we were able to not only talk about uh, Joan Yardley and her accomplishments, but as well bring up um, Hope Scott and her prominence and importance in the university's holdings as well. And it really has just kind of been a constant, just constant revision, constant changing throughout this whole process. It's been very good for me. And it's even now in this kind of coming into its final drafts, we were still kind of working with things. There was an artist that named Shauna McNaughton who we wanted to include, who was a performance artist, but the audio wouldn't upload. There were problems with it, with the Google Arts and Culture um, uh, site. And so we had to remove her 
Now, if you notice, the title of this is 15 Artists, 200 Years. And suddenly we realized that with the removal of one of the artists, it turned into 14 Artists, 200 Years. And that just doesn't quite have the same ring to it. <laughs> it doesn't sound as good. Uh, so now we're trying to decide, do we add another artist? Do we take more artists out and just round it off to an even 10? Um, so just kind of going through that process, making those decisions um, and kind of having that flexibility work all things that I've learned throughout this process and been able to gain a, a better skill set in that sense. But I just wanted to give a really big thanks to uh, Julianne and Liv and Anna for all their help. This would definitely not have been possible without all of them. And a big uh, thanks to Bianca as well for um, all that she's done in helping um, kind of mediate between me and Google Arts and Culture and helping me figure out the system and everything. So thank you. Thank you, Jessalyn. That was a wonderful presentation. I don't know about all of you, but I feel very privileged to have had this um, early sneak peek into, into this Google Arts and Culture story. It looks absolutely fantastic. And again, you know, just as interesting as the work itself that you've created, Jessalyn, was to, was to hear your, your very honest insights and reflections into that process. Really, really useful. I'm an absolutely, you know, fantastic piece of work. I hope you're very proud of, of what you've created together with the art collection team. You absolutely um, should be, and I'm very excited for that to be published and for everyone to get to, to start to see it. Everyone is, has been doing such, such amazing things. And I know that our next speaker, Sonali, is no exception because I have actually had the privilege of attending and it was, was absolutely great. So our, our final speaker is Sonali Mishra. Sonali comes to us from the Scottish Graduate School of Arts and Humanities and is our first ever artist in residence. We're, we're very pleased about that. Sonali has been working with Ruthann on the, the Prescribed Culture Project, currently doing a, a PhD at the University of Stirling and has a background as well in creative writing. So she's been creating these, these wonderful writing workshops for the Prescribed Culture Programme. I'll hand over to you, Sonali. Thank you. That was such a kind introduction. Thanks, Laura. Yes. So as Laura mentioned, I am doing an artist in residency. So I'm part of the Prescribed Cultures Program 6, along with two other programs, which are Mindful Museums. And, and most recently, I was commissioned to write a personal essay for the National Library of Scotland and to be added to their archives, which is very, very exciting. And I'm an experienced creative writing facilitator. I've done it twice during Book Week Scotland and multiple times in India at schools, libraries, community halls, etc. And I actually pursued an MSc in creative writing at the University of Edinburgh. So that's my connect with the university. And while I was there, my peers and I co-founded a literary magazine called the Selkie Publications, which is now in its third year. And we have published over 200 underrepresented voices on our website and in our anthologies. And I'm also presently the co-chair of the Society of Young Publishers Scotland. So like Laura mentioned, I am doing this artist residency via the Scottish Graduate School of Arts and Humanities. So in this program, which is now being conducted all online, <laughs> uh, unsurprisingly, 
We're utilizing heritage collections to support connection with the world around us, which I think is extremely important right now when we're kind of stuck in our boxes, our rooms, and we're, our major relationship is with our laptop or our TV screens. And through this, we're exploring the collections, the fantastic collections at the University of Edinburgh Museums. And I have been fortunate enough to collaborate with four different collections with working with four different curators, which I'll speak about in a while. So the way this is working out is we're doing 1.5 hour weekly uh, workshops, which are meant to be like a creative outlet for mental well-being, And these are conducted over six weeks, ergo program six. And my part is that I use the collections, we take inspiration from them, and then I conduct creative writing exercises where we experiment with creative writing forms and styles. So I'll talk a bit about how I planned this because I'm still halfway through my uh, residency and technically I'm halfway through, but most of that part hasn't spent on planning and familiarizing uh, myself with um, prescribed culture and the collections. So my internship began on 1st March and for the first two months, I basically learned more about prescribed culture because that was a new concept to me. And I became familiar with the collections and I discussed things with obviously uh, Laura and Ruthann who've been helping me out and have been great. And we zoned on a few select uh, collections and a few curators who have been amazing too and have been so collaborative. And in my meetings with the curators, we selected a few objects and specimens that they will speak on for about 15 to 30 minutes every workshop. And then I will lead everyone into a writing exercise. So after selecting the specimens, I had to then decide how to approach them because I wanted to keep the workshops varied and interesting. It wasn't just get inspired from this and now write for the next hour. I wanted to do something different each time. So this is what you finally came up with. These are six workshops and we have conducted the first one and halfway through the second. So uh, we're basically doing two workshops a week. The first is being done as a sort of referral program. So it's aimed at postgrads at Scottish universities, but also actually universities elsewhere because we've connected with other universities such as Lisbon, which again, I'll get into in a bit. So uh, we're conducting these over two days on Tuesdays and Saturdays, which is why you'll see the two dates so the first one you've conducted so far is The Roles We Play, uh, which was with Sarah Dieters at St. Cecilia's Hall. And it was really great to see the other presentations because we actually did include the virginal and the serpent in our workshop as well. And uh, the second one, which is with Malcolm, which is at the Anatom Anatomical Museum, um, we have conducted the Tuesday workshop. And then we have the Saturday one, which is the public workshop, which is being done through Eventbrite. And because these are all digital done over Zoom, it's open to anyone in the world. And we've got a great mix of people in both workshops. And yeah, we've done the Tuesday one, looking forward to the Saturday one. And the rest are with Elizabeth and Jillian. And really interesting formats, I think, if I can say it so, where we're gonna do something like automatic writing. We have a zine making workshop. We have writing a letter to your past self, et cetera. So the registrations and logistics, which were a bit different from the pilot, which was conducted in 2019, because A, we're doing two workshops. One is open to the public through uh, Eventbrite. And these are all being done on Zoom. So while I think we all miss being physically in the spaces, in the amazing, like for example, we would have loved to be in St. Cecilia's Hall and work that day. 
but the good thing is that we're able to reach a wider audience all over Scotland, but also other parts of the world. So the group sizes are about 15 to 16 in each. And um, logistically, the curators are trying to be present on the Tuesday workshop, but if they can't because of prior commitments, they're sending me pre-recorded videos. And some can then be live later on and answer questions. But if not, then I will take over. And if they if they're able to come on the Tuesday, but not on the Saturday, which is understandable since it's the weekend, not everyone works on the weekend. Um, I am recording their videos on Zoom and playing them on the Saturday. And these are the latest developments. Like I mentioned, we've done one with Sarah. Um, it was it was great. It was the first workshop that we had. So we wanted to give people a bit of space to be inspired and not throw them into something a bit tougher, I guess, because not everyone has experience with creative writing uh, in the workshop. So that's a little screen grab of Sarah talking about the loot. And we got some great responses. Um, some people wrote directly about the instrument. Some people took inspiration from it. For example, one participant uh, wrote a piece about how sound and music elicits an emotional response, which we tie to different time periods. So when Sarah played a sample of the virginal, for example, it brought images of these period dramas that we've all seen. So they, that participant was exploring that through their writing. And in the Tuesday workshop, um, Malcolm um, picked up three specimens, which were the horn of Elizabeth, and we had Robert Burns' uh, skull, the cast of it, and then we had the skeleton of Bode Joseph, so a variety over there. And we also discussed phrenology and great responses there as well. We then took these um, specimens and um, I helped everyone create characters inspired from them or through secondary or imagined characters who might have been present around those people in their times. And after we created these characters using four of our senses, so sight, smell, um, hearing, and touch, we then engaged our characters in dialogue. So that was pretty interesting as well. We got some great results. And yeah, looking forward to the rest of the workshops. And because we actually had quite a good response from participants, we had a bit of a waiting list, but we didn't want to go above a certain limit. So we could have like a close-knit community each time. Um, we're actually exploring another round of workshops, which I will discuss with Ruthann and the curators in my meetings next. So because my internship ends about the end of August, so we can do this in July and August and hopefully do the public workshop, not on the weekend this time. So the curators can be present themselves and it might suit people who have plans or are busy on the weekend or who have childcare responsibilities, for example. So it might suit them, we might do it on a weekday evening and see how that goes. So it's been great that we have, we've been able to experiment with days and times and hopefully this will help prescribe culture for the next round since you know we've done some permutations and combinations this time around. And before I end, just wanna say thanks to <laughs> Laura for organizing this and to Ruthann for being a great manager, both Laura and Ruthann and to all of the amazing curators I've been working with. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much, Sonali. That was that was fantastic. I particularly enjoyed hearing a little bit about um, some of the participants, what they came up with as a result of the workshops. And I was wondering, obviously, we you know it's up to them if they want to share their work or not. But would there be any scope for the writing that they create, you know, during the workshops to be be shared with some of us? Because I'm sure the curators, for example, would would love to see 
I, I did discuss that with Ruthan in the beginning. One of the things I was thinking of was actually creating an output of everyone's writing. But at the end, we realized the focus should be more on the well-being aspect than the creative writing. Um, we've made it clear from the beginning that people don't have to share their writing. And I'm actually not encouraging them to share their writing because it could be very personal and some things they could be writing could be triggering for others because we have to remember that people who are on these workshops will have uh, low-level mental health problems. And I'm not... Um, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not equipped to deal with that aspect. So we're keeping the focus more on the, an escape from everyone's troubles, which, you know, the world is on fire is quite understandable. So yeah, the focus has been more on providing a safe space and a creative out, uh, outlet rather than having like a record of uh, creation, cre uh, writing, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that sounds like a very, very sensible approach so much. So that brings us to, to the end of our presentations. I just want to say a huge thank you again to, to all five of you. Really, really excellent stuff. Thanks so much. Thanks for organising this. Yeah, thanks, Laura. You've been listening to We've Got History. This was a snapshot of the intern showcase that took place virtually at the CRC at the end of May 2021. You heard from Mary, the conservation intern, Rowan, the St Cecilia's Hall intern, Daisy, the summer scholar at the Anatomical Museum, Jesslyn, the intern with the arts collections, and Sonali, the artist in residence with Prescribed Culture. Episode edited by Lily Mellon, cover art by Lisa Grieve, musical contributions by Chris Murdoch. Please stay tuned over the coming months for more additions to We've Got History Between Us. For example, the next recording of Meet the Series is taking place this week, and you can join us in person to ask questions on the date.